0: So it's a blessing, um, powerful song about the gospel, you know, our redemption to salvation. I had some attributes of God tucked in there, too, at the front end I was, I was picking up on. Age to age, the same, you know, God's attribute of unchangeableness, uh, God's attribute of incomprehensibility, his attribute of depth was in there. I love those sorts of things because we're not just about the gospel of Jesus Christ here. We're about the gospel of Jesus Christ here. You understand what I'm saying? Our first value at the church is to know God for who He is. And so when we talk about the gospel, we're not just talking about any gospel. Paul says that there are multiple gospels out there, multiple Jesuses out there. No, we're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Jesus who is, the Jesus who does everything that song has just been talking about, he's died, and because he's died, we live. He's right now at the right hand of God the Father, that Jesus. So we rejoice in that. All right, and it's good to see you, by the way. Way to take advantage of the second hour. Way to come out on a gross morning. I don't know if it's still as disgusting out as it was when I showed up here at the church, but... Anyway, it's really good to see you. Two weeks ago, we did a father-daughter hike. It was a night hike. And so we, the dads and the daughters went over to uh, Lighty Road there in the Appalachian Trail. And we were going to go up to Center Point Knob. And we had gathered uh, ourselves there at the trailhead. And it was after dark, just after dark. And one of the little... These girls were precious. Oh, my word. <laughs> And they all kind of lean into their dads you know, they're attached right to their dad's hip, and they, this one little girl, she kind of she, she kind of looks up at her dad and she says, "Daddy, "Daddy, daddy." <laughs> and he, he, he looks down. he says, "What is it, sweetie?" And, and I love, by the way, when a dad refers to his daughter that way." And she says... When do we get to eat s'mores? <laughs> and he was, and he says to her, "We have to climb the mountain first because <laughs> we're gonna have a fire up on top. You'll be able to go ahead and roast your marshmallow and have your graham crackers and your chocolate up there." Well, it was a clear sky and you can kind of see the silhouette of the ridge line, and you know all the girls kind of looked up and that looks like a long way away. <laughs> It's going to take some getting to, but we started out, we hiked up the mountain, and we got up there, and, uh, and, and it was awesome. And we're all kind of standing around, and I thought, you know, we should, we should do something up here, and I don't want to sing because I don't want to listen to the sound of my own voice, you know? Um, and so I chose to ask the question of the girls, what is your favorite animal? And so... One said a whale, and another one said a horse, and another one said uh, a sea turtle, and another one said a monkey, and then a whole bunch of them said monkey, monkey. So there were a bunch of monkeys, you know? But I thought it was very interesting. There were no predators in the mix. And and then we're up there, and so, you know, I remember even uh, asking the question, you know, do, do you like, are you having a good time? And one little girl, bless her heart, she says this, you know, is there any way that you could have a mother-daughter spa night? <laughs> mother-daughter spa night. I, I was like, how old are you? You know, she, she, she was probably nine years old. I'm like, what, who told you about spa night? But anyway, women's ministry be advised. Mother-daughter spa night. It was a good time, but it took some getting there. And it was a little bit daunting, I think, for a lot of those girls to kind of look and say, you know, we're going all the way up there? Last week we had a great sermon, Timely Blessed. Trent shared about how there are times when in our lives we are afraid but we really ought not to be. We don't have to be, there, there, there's no reason to be afraid. And I think that those girls kind of learned that, that night, oh wow, I need to get there, but there's some hope, you know. There's, there, there's, there's a reason for me to get there. I'm gonna get there, it might be hard, but I'm gonna get there, and it's gonna be a good thing when I do. It's gonna be a good thing. Two nights ago, we did a father-son trip hike, after dark night hike, and we gathered all the dads and the sons there at the White Rock Trailhead. We made our way up the mountain along the ridgeline. On this one, I had chosen to go last just to make sure that we didn't lose anyone along the way. I get up there to where the fire has already been lit, and oh, my word, it was bedlam. There were just boys swarming everywhere, and it was like this free-for-all. And, you know, I I no sooner arrive, and I'm like, you know, I see this big tree that's dead, that's, that's tilted like this, and it's leaning on this small little sapling, and these boys are climbing up the tree. And I'm like, boys, get down from there, you're gonna kill someone, you're gonna kill yourselves. You know, and then they're running off into the woods, and, you know, they're discovering, uh, wow, you mean I, I, I get to d- d- go to the bathroom in the woods? <laughs> and there's flashlights all through the trees, and I'm wondering, well, where are the dads? <laughs> and <laughs> It was crazy. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, don't, don't run over that way because there's a cliff over there and you're going to go like right over the edge. There's danger in the area, and these boys were completely oblivious. And isn't it true that while there are times when we are afraid and we ought not to be, that there are other times when we're not afraid and that we probably should be? And that's kind of the gist, the essence of this morning's message Open up, if you got your Bible, to Isaiah 22. Trent tackled eight chapters in the book of Isaiah, seven oracles last week. This week we have three more chapters, five oracles. What's interesting about these oracles, and by the way, an oracle, what is an oracle? Um, An oracle is going to be... um, an authori- let's, uh, let's call it an authoritative message with kind of a prophetic twist to it. God is addressing, and so he's addressing these different nations and what are called oracles, and it's one nation after another. And we come into chapter 21 this morning, and he picks up with the nation of Babylon, and he says to Babylon, um, the day will come when... You've got some neighbors, and you're going to kind of place your trust in those neighbors as nations, and they're going to turn on you, and they're going to betray you. And there are a few things in life that hurt more than betrayal. And he says they're going to betray you. And by the way, if you wanted to read about that very scene that happened that very night that Babylon and its kingdom came to an end... You read about that in Daniel chapter 5 and Daniel confronts the final king of Babylon, Belshazzar, and he says, you did not worship the God who holds in his hand your life. He holds in his hand your life and all your ways. The Medes were already in the streets of Babylon when he uttered that prophecy. Daniel chapter 5. So it moves then in Isaiah 21 from Babylon then to something called Duma, which is actually uh, a name for Edom, Mount Seir. That was a nation that would have been to the southeast of Israel on the far side of the Dead Sea. And to them, uh, the message had to do with desperation. Uh, you're going to find yourselves desperate. Like in a life and death situation. And you're going to be asking again and again, when does morning come? When does morning come? M-O-R-N-I-N-G. And the reason for that is because back in those days when an army would lay siege to a city, the way that they would often do it is there would be nothing, 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 and then the sun would go down. And then they would quietly, as quietly as they could, fill the valleys at night so that when the sun came back up in the morning, the watchmen are like, oh my word, like not just a platoon here or there, but an army all the way around the city to intimidate the people who were inside. And so Edom is asking, when is the morning coming? When it, We're scared to death. And the response back to them is, Hey, you know what? Uh, just, it'll come. And then night will follow, and then there will be another one. You know what? You're bothering me. Just run along. I don't care that you're desperate. And how does that feel? Isn't that a scary thing? When you are so terrified and you're looking for answers, and that the person you turn to says, You're bothering me. Enough already. You're boring me. That's terrifying. And then the third oracle to Arabia, that you know, you're going to be living there in thickets, and then these fugitives are going to be coming from other places. They're going to be trying to hide. They can run, but they can't hide. That's scary. But when you do invite them in to give them some sort of a piecemeal shelter, you won't be able to comfort them. They will be inconsolable. And that's going to drive you crazy. So, those who want to extend care and they find that their care is doing no good whatsoever, that's a terrifying thing also. The fifth oracle has to do with Tyre and Sidon up along the northwest coast above Israel. What's today Lebanon? But the fourth oracle is to Jerusalem. And you got to believe that here's Isaiah, and the Lord is speaking through him, and he's saying to and through Isaiah to his own people okay, uh, here's what's going to happen to Babylon, and here's what's going to happen to Edom, and here's what's going to happen to Arabia, and here's what's going to happen to Tyre and Sidon. And that list goes on in all those chapters. And that here's what's going to happen to you. And all of a sudden, the attitude may very well have been, brother, when you bring it back to Jerusalem, you had better be careful. Because if the truth be told, if we don't like what you have to say to us, we might just saw you in half. Which in fact is how Isaiah met his end. Talks about that in Hebrews chapter eleven. Lest we think that Isaiah, the prophet, the man of God, was just welcomed with open arms. I won't get into the details of how he died, but when it says in Hebrews eleven, some were sawn in two, and that the world was not worthy of them. Scholars for a long, long time have agreed that's talking about and is a direct reference to Isaiah and how he met his demise. And on that note, Isaiah chapter 22. If you got your Bible, open up to Isaiah 22. And we're going to have it up on the screens also. And we're just going to walk slash run right through this text. And then we're going to end up in a second text that I think is gonna really lift our spirits. It should, I hope it does, I believe it will. Isaiah 22. Says this, the oracle concerning the valley of vision. Which you need to know, and some of us are gonna have a hard time with this idea, that at times, at least in his own perfect way, God, without Staining his character in any way is fairly sarcastic. And he's sarcastic here, and it's not the only place in this chapter that he's sarcastic. He says, The oracle concerning the valley of vision, and I'm choosing to call Jerusalem the valley of vision because if there's one thing that this people is above everything else right now, and it's community, is blind. There is no vision whatsoever in the valley of vision. So, concerning the valley of vision, and then Isaiah kind of starts into the first person here speaking for God, and he says, what do you mean that you have gone up, all of you, to the housetops, you who are full of shoutings, Tumultuous city, exultant town, your slain are not slain with a sword or dead in battle. All your leaders have fled together without the bow; they were captured. All of you were found, who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. And so, that re- really, what that's it's Isaiah saying? What is going on around here? What's going on around here? You think that if you can gather together, if we get enough people, work the idea, get a consensus that will somehow succeed. If we can be unified, we all feel the same way. Let's get up on top of the roofs where uh, the breeze can kind of blow over the top of the city. We're not having to... Squeeze into the alleys down below. Those roofs are going to be flat. We're going to have a good time up there. All of us together. But unity is not necessarily good. He goes on and he says, Your slain are not slain with the sword were dead in battle, so they didn't end up in Valhalla. You know what I'm talking about. All your leaders have fled together. They were cowards. They left without weapons. They just, you know, ran up into the hills, hope we don't get caught. They got caught to the shame of their own shame and the people they'd fled from. All of you were found. So all of you up on the housetops, all of you are found. Therefore, it says in verse 4, therefore I said, this is Isaiah speaking again, look away from me, let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. You're so happy. And it's breaking my heart. is what he's saying right there in verse 4. A little bit of a party pooper prophet. (laughs) But he's just trying to be faithful to the Lord. had such a heart of compassion for the people. They'd end up cutting him in half. He wept. His heart was so full for them. Skip ahead to verse 8. It says this, in more of the prose language, probably in your version. In that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest. The house of the forest was just the armory there in Jerusalem. And you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. as holes in the wall for the enemy to come through. You collected the waters of the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. So, I mean, just look at how fantastic their strategy is, thorough and well planned out we're going to go ahead we're going to survey see whose house is still standing uh see who's got the best bricks and mortar around that we can use and then we're going to go and we're going to fill in these breaches these holes in the wall that we can build the wall higher protect ourselves and so we got this strategy we've had all this analysis We've got this plan, we're implementing the plan. And God says to that, but you did not look to him who did it, or see him who planned it long ago. God planned it. You could have looked to the one who had it in mind, the very one who's orchestrated it, but you didn't. So, so far, you've thought to yourself that if you can just be unified, if you can just get together, maybe that'll solve the problem. Or if you can strategize well enough, maybe that will solve the predicament. Go on to verse 12. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning for baldness and wearing sackcloth. Essentially, it's a, it's a call to repentance there. What you need to do is confess your sin, he's saying to Israel. You need to confess your sin. And behold, this was the reality on the heels of God's call to repentance, verse 13. And behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. So God called for repentance, and you decided to party instead because you thought, hey, if we can all get together and have this time of celebration, maybe especially if we're drunk by morning, we can all kind of convince ourselves that it's not such a dilemma as maybe we thought, at least not last night. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And it's not always healthy to be happy. Sometimes we want to think that happiness is so good Man, I think it is, but not always. I think that the text is saying the same thing. Lead us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Jesus said in Luke 6, Woe to you who laugh now, because you will mourn and grieve. Woe to you, Jesus. New Testament, Jesus... In the New Testament, woe to you who laugh, for you will mourn. So even that third thing of celebration doesn't always work, does it? There's reason to fear, and the people in this chapter, the people in Jerusalem in those days, were looking to combat that fear in different ways but it just wasn't sufficient. It just wasn't sufficient. Well, they went through those three ways and then a fourth way. Verse 15, thus says the Lord God of hosts, come and go to this steward. Have you seen Return to the King? Uh, When Gandalf is there and he's confronting Denethor, the steward of of Gondor and the city of Minas Tirith, and he says uh, essentially, hey, there is a king And it's not you, steward. Remember that? It's the exact same thing right here. The Lord God of hosts, comma, come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, what have you to do here? You know, your tasks that you're running around, and you think you're so important because you're, you know, you're holding the whole thing together, and, no one can live without you. And whom have you here? Your entourage, uh, the people who follow you about and kind of worship your performance? I've, I've, I've worked for a few Shebnas, and I'm going to tell you, it ain't easy. Cut out a, here a tomb for yourself, you who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. Uh, they think they've found that tomb, by the way, that Shebna cut for himself in the rock. And I don't think that they found him buried in it. Isn't that interesting? But he was strong. The text goes on to make plain that he was strong charismatic. He very definitely had a followership. So he's that kind of leader. Shebna. But it wasn't good enough. Strong, but self-consumed. Nothing of a shepherd for the people. Shebna. Next try, verse 20. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, And I will clothe him with your robe, Shebna. All that authority that used to be yours, I'm going to switch it up and I'm going to give it to him. And I will bind your sash on him. And I will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. And he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house. The offspring and issue. Every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. God given. I mean that's like monumental it seems to me for God to give all of that to this one man and as I'm reading through that description you know who I'm reminded of is our own pastor Trent can I just go ahead and say that God given stuff to Trent Trent I've gotten to work next to Trent two doors down his office is two doors down from mine we've gotten to know each other pretty well I know I don't know him better than everyone. We've gotten to know one another. And we work side by side day by day. And he strikes me as the kind of man of whom the Lord says, "My servant." My servant. And I read this description, and I realize the kind of authority with which he preaches. And I see the kind of shepherd's heart that he has. And by the way, folks, I have to say this, not just because he gets choked up sincerely from here on the platform, but I see it behind closed doors when we pray for us. And so I see that kind of heart, that kind of willingness, even in him. But in Eliakim, what's that last verse say? It says, in that day declares the Lord of hosts, The peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way and it will be cut down and fall and the load that was on it will be cut off for the Lord has spoken. Now I'm not reading that verse to be prophetic in Trent's life. okay? But the point of that verse about Eliakim is that he was so willing and that the Lord took him and used him but that he wasn't going to be sufficient in the long run even when God was the one who secured him, that security would diminish eventually. So that even good, godly, father-like leadership was not going to prove fully capable in the community. There's a phrase in verse 22, it says this, And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. Have you heard that before? Flip over to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We're going to close with this. This is Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, a letter to the church in Philadelphia. Depending on the Bible you've got in your lap, it's going to be in red ink, and we know that that means it's from Jesus. It says this in verse, 11, or verse 7. This is Revelation 3, 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write this local church, this precious, healthy, local church in what is today uh, the nation of Turkey, what had been Asia Minor, write this. The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut who shuts and no one opens? Jesus, and that Jesus, according to His pleasure, has taken the words right out of Isaiah 22 and said, "You know what? Eliakim, despite his good intentions and he was a good man, and I used him according to my will. He was a he was a pliable uh, thing in my hand. This is all good. He was willing." but he was still too weak. But you know what? I'm I'm not too weak. I'm not too weak. So now I've got the key. I've got that which means admittance or not to the king. I'm the one who controls all open doors. I'm the one who controls all closed doors. And what I happen to say, let's open this thing up. There is no one ever, ever going to be able to shut what I want opened. And that which is shut, and it's a terrifying thought, there is no one who's going to be able to open what I happen to shut and want shut. It will be kept shut. And he goes on there, and this is where we just want to be so blessed to listen to the commitment of Christ to this church and pray for this for our own selves, don't we? We don't want to be the valley of vision. We want to be the church in Philadelphia. We want to be people who know what it means to embrace a fearlessness, but also to embrace an appropriate kind of regular fear in our lives so that we're walking through life in the way that these Philadelphians did. Jesus says this to them, I know your works. And not only, by the way, do I know what you've done, I know what you intend to do, I know that you, what you end up doing, but I also know what you want to do. And, and those things that... You may want to do them for me. I don't want you to do them. But I, have, I have other tasks in mind for you. But it's good that you have that in your heart. I know that also, and I'm not going to forget about that. What you have in your heart to do for me, you'll never end up doing. That's my will. You'll never end up doing it. But it's good that you have it. I'm not going to forget that, and I'm even going to bless you for that. I know your works. And he says, behold, I have set before you an open door to get to me. It's because I want you and I love you and I want to, I'm inviting you to come toward me and to enter in to me that we can have this forever relationship. No one's going to slam that door. No one's going to make it difficult. No one's going to, open. you know, yeah, they'll keep it open, but they'll only keep it open six inches. That door is open, it's going to remain open. And you need to know that about me in Philadelphia. I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. There's Eliakim again. This is the king, the servant, the leader of all leaders, even the Eliakims of the church. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. That's a good thing. He says, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. So a little bit of theology there, a little bit of eschatology maybe. We're not going to get into that. But he says this, behold... I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And suddenly that sounds an awful lot like Psalm 23 to me. We we know Psalm 23, don't we? And there toward the end of that psalm when it says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You do that for me. God said, yeah, that's, that's what I do. I I, I want to take you and prepare this banquet feast and then I'm gonna invite all your enemies to your feast and rather than eat and partake with you and now you guys are all restored and you all get along together. No, it's that I'm going to have you only do the eating and I'm gonna have them watch so that they can see how long it is and how wonderful, how deep it is that I'm blessing you Because that's what I want to do. And he says, they will learn that I have loved you. And it occurs to me that sometimes, isn't that the way God prefers to operate? That we have friends and we have family and we're praying for them and we're praying for them. And Lord, show them your love for them. Be irresistible in your grace toward them. Make them one of your own. Bring them into the fold. Love them. Help them open their eyes to your love for them. But sometimes that's not how God prefers to work. Sometimes it is. Sometimes he communicates his love directly to them. But sometimes what he'd rather do is say, no, I'm not going to communicate it directly to them. I'm going to communicate it directly to you and then let them watch. And isn't that an awesome thought? Except for maybe in America in 2017, we think to ourselves, well, God, if you start to bless me that much, then people are gonna think that I'm arrogant, that I somehow am full of myself because I'm actually so full of your blessing. But I wanna say, we don't, we don't wanna be those sorts of people. We don't wanna be embarrassed or even ashamed of the blessing of God in our own lives. Far be it from us, right, to, to be apologizing for these good, wonderful, loving things that come our way because God is going to want to use that, shine up that light, don't hide your light under a bushel, let your good deeds be seen so that they'll come to know me and honor me and see how much I love them. And so we want to be those sorts of people even if that means that. (laughs) Goes on and he says, I have loved you, that they will learn that I have loved you, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you. In the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth, he says, I am coming soon, hold fast. So there's some stuff that's going on about the end times there. But he's saying that no matter what comes next, no matter what's down the road, no matter the future, I will keep you. I will keep, And that's the important point. I don't know what's going to happen next. But I know that I'm kept by God. Jesus loves me enough. Jesus, as, what do you want to call it, leader, savior, Lord, we find our hope in him. Those girls went up that mountain. It was like, there's hope on top. And they found it. Those boys made it to the top. It was like a free-for-all on top of the mountain. But they had a good time, too. Not unity not strategy not celebration not even the leadership of a strong powerful man and not even the leadership of a good godly man hope is found in Christ alone and that's the message he sent to Philadelphia Got to believe it's the message he sends to us.